And, you know, so I come to my first class and Hank Hart happens to be strolling the hallways and he's like, what are you teaching? And I was like, I'm teaching a course on Hannah Arendt. He's like, Arendt, you don't know anything about Arendt. Hello, I am Gideon Strauss and you are listening to Critical Faith. This podcast is coming to you from the Center for Philosophy, Religion and Social Ethics at the Institute for Christian Studies, casually known as ICS. ICS is a graduate school of philosophy in Toronto where I am senior member. That's what we call our faculty. In this podcast, we get together to talk about all things faith, scholarship, and society, and the many ways those things interact. We want Critical Faith to give you a bit of a glimpse into the everyday life of ICS. So each week, we will invite a new panel of guests, including past and present members of ICS and friends of the Institute to join us. We'll ask them to share their journey in scholarship and how it connects to their faith and their lives. I'm Danielle Yet an ICS junior member, that's what we call our students. Also with us today is Ron Kuypers, ICS president and senior member. We'll introduce Ron when we get to our second segment. Because almost all of us are new to this podcast, we'll start this episode with a set of intro questions. So Danielle, what was your favorite book in childhood? So the first book that I remember being a favorite book at all um, was a book called Roxaboxen, which is this kids picture book um, about these kids who live in the wilderness, kind of, and construct this city out of a bunch of rocks and like detritus and just imagine what life is like and then kind of grow up and then reflect on that. And it's a, considering where I am now, it's a very telling kind of arc that that was one of my favorite books as a child. Huh. So kids, imagination, wilderness, uh, yes. that resonates with my favorite childhood book. Um, so C.S. Lewis's uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, although I encountered that originally in Afrikaans, my birth tongue. And in Afrikaans, it was called exactly the same, but in the other language, it's Diliu, Dihex, and Dihankas. And so you can imagine my delight a few years after reading this book in Afrikaans for the first time, discovering that it was not a solitary standalone novel, but that there was a whole series uh, available in English. There's kids, you need adventure. Yeah. So second of three intro questions. For our listeners who live in or may visit Toronto, what is your favorite bar or coffee shop in ICS's hometown? So my favorite Toronto bar, we're going to go with the bar here, um, is actually called Ronnie's and it's in Kensington Market. It is the pinnacle of all dive bars in my mind. Um, And it's also, it has a warm spot in my heart because it's both dingy and endearing and somehow those things work for me. Um, But it's also one of the first places that I kind of hung out with my cohort of ICS junior members when I came here to start um, studying at ICS. And so it's it's just a it's it's got a warm spot in my heart. I don't know. (laughs) Dingy and endearing, I think, is a wonderful way of describing almost all of Kensington Market. That's true. It's also going to be the title of my memoir. Dingy and endearing. So mine is, uh, you went with bar, I'll go with coffee shop for this time around. Sure, um, keep it sure even. We'll, yeah. Um, uh, I love having my meetings with students and with colleagues and with other people as walking meetings. And currently my favorite walk for walking meetings is from where ICS is located now at 59 uh, St. George's Street uh, in the low level of Knox College out onto the University of Toronto campus through something known as the Philosopher's Walk, very appropriately, and then ending up at the uh, Royal Conservatory of Music. And in their atrium, there's a little coffee shop. Uh, it's run by a small chain called Via Espresso, 
but the atrium space is just great and the walk there and back has been magnificent all our fall or autumn mm-hmm. uh, we'll see what it's like in the winter fall is definitely toronto at its best yeah as yeah brief i cannot as it is. disagree <laughs> with that I cannot disagree with that so our third and last intro question is also the most controversial who do you think is the most overrated philosopher of our time or if you like of all time let's burn all the bridges um well mine i'm going to find a way around this question in whatever manner i choose apparently so i my choice is ernest hemingway gasp gasp (laughs) everyone's gonna come after me now um and the reason he is my well i guess it's not my least favorite but the most overrated in my mind is there's just a certain kind of cynicism and contempt and like aloofness about his writing that just rubs me exactly the wrong way and then leads people who read him to be rubbed to also be able to rub people the wrong way i don't know the way that people this is why i consider him a philosopher choice is i think people take him as indicative of a of a style yeah a style of writing that is, um, you know, uplifting in some way. And it's just, it's totally not to me. <laughs> uh, well, that's a brave choice. I'm going to go with much less brave choices. Um, <laughs> I think uh, uh, it's just so easy but so necessary to say that Ayn Rand is not a philosopher. Here, here. And, um, you know, uh, nonetheless, I think Rand has had an outsized reputation and outside influence on especially younger people in the North American setting Mm. as a so-called philosopher and also through her so-called novels. And so I think it's necessary to say that that's not a good thing. Mm. Uh, But then also uh, uh, I would want to add, and cheating, taking two worst or most overrated uh, philosophers, um, upset several of my colleagues by suggesting that Slavoj uh, Žižek is uh, a hugely overrated living philosopher. So, mm-hmm. um, And it's uh, uh, contentious to say that, I think, at the Institute for Christian Studies, given that we're currently teaching a course and will in the future teach courses in which Žižek features. It's also probably more infuriating because he would love that you feel that way about him. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> first of our new regular segment, Don't Miss This. So in this segment, Don't Miss This, we will highlight all kinds of things that we don't want you as our listeners to miss. New books and articles in philosophy, theology, and current affairs, important events and anniversaries in these same worlds, as well as in the church here, and every now and then an event at the Institute for Christian Studies. And we have something rather exciting to share this week and over the next few weeks, so don't know. Yes, drum roll. So here at ICS, most of us have been working quite diligently on organizing and arranging our upcoming open house and advent concert. Um, And that's going to be on December 1st. uh, And it's going to be basically to celebrate our move over the summer into our new space at 59 St. George Street uh, at the bottom in the lower level of Knox College. And so to welcome, we want to welcome kind of all of our supporters and people who are interested into our new space. And to do that, we are having an open house, which starts at 5 p.m. 
Um, and it's going to go to like seven and people can just come in, kind of see the space, see what we're doing. Uh, and then at 7.30, we will have an Advent concert in the beautiful Knox Chapel upstairs. And it's going to feature uh, in Contra Vocal Ensemble and uh, Artistic Director Matthew Otto. And the space is beautiful. The singers are beautiful. Or they sound beautiful. I'm sure they look beautiful, too. Um <laughs> And Matthew is great, and it's it's going to be a really lovely night, and we're really looking forward to getting some people in our doors. So if people want to uh, buy tickets for the uh, choir performance, uh, what, where should they go and what should they do? So you can go to ICS's homepage, which is icscanada.edu, and there's a giant picture on the front page that has a link to where you can buy your tickets. Oh, that's awesome. And I think it's, what, $50 a ticket? Yeah, 50 a ticket. Yeah. Think of that also as making a contribution to graduate education in uh, Canada, North America, and the world. Or my education, if you need more concrete. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and for a bit of self-promotion, um, I want to suggest that you also don't miss an interview that I did with historian Heath Carter. Uh, Heath... Uh, is at Valparaiso University. He is an historian of the relationship between religion and social engagement in the American context. And he is also the winner of the 2018 Emerging Public Intellectual Award. Um, I did the interview for Convivium magazine, and it's very easy to find the interview. You can just go to the front page of the magazine at convivium.ca. So that's C-O-N-V-I-V-I-U-M.ca. And you will see a link to the interview. And this takes us to our second segment. In the second of our new regular segments, we want to give you a glimpse of what it is like to be critically faithful in a graduate school of philosophy, theology, and interdisciplinary studies like ICS. And so we will simply be asking our guests, what are you working on? We'll be talking about seminars and courses taking place at ICS at this moment, the reading and other research our members are doing, our writing, publishing, presentations, and conference participation. So Ron, before we start on the segment proper, because you are new uh, to the podcast, as we all are at this stage, we, we ask our guests a standard set of three introductory questions, and so we'll ask you those now. And the first one is, what was your favorite book in childhood? Uh, I remember um, reading uh, books from a series called uh, Spire, Spire Torch Books, I think they were called. And they're all little Bible stories that came with a little vinyl record, the kind that you could bend. You had to put a penny on when, when, on the record player so they wouldn't skip. And, uh, and you know, so this is pretty early childhood. I mean, uh, so there was one about, uh, is, was it Elijah on Mount? What's, what was the name of the mountain where he had the contest between uh, Yahweh and Baal? Okay. Yeah. And the, uh, you know, they doused the, uh, the altar with water and, uh, you know, and then they called on their respective gods. And, uh, this is a picture book for kids that I was oh, reading man. as a young guy. Yeah. There was one on Samson, you know, and, uh, you know, and all the different sort of. So I'm picturing little Ron sitting there putting the little records, vinyl records, yeah. right? On the little record player and paging through the book. And well, I mean, they were super entertaining, right? Like, yeah. as, as you know, I, when you got bored in church during a sermon, you'd always flip open the book of Judges to get the, you know, blood and gore and <laughs> tent pegs being rammed through skulls and things of that nature. But uh, <laughs> so, um, but I know I really do remember uh, a big Grimm's fairy tale book that I had that was, okay. that was also illustrated and uh, Dr. Seuss. Okay. Yeah. Oh, it's it's flooding back now, but lots of doctors. Yeah. 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 So the second of our three intro questions, uh, this is for our listeners who live in Toronto or who may visit Toronto. Favorite bar, favorite coffee shop? Well, my favorite bar slash coffee shop slash restaurant is uh, Borel. Uh, it's a so new, how do you spell that? Uh, B-O-R-R-E-L. And it's the Dutch word for a drink. Okay. Go for a Borel. Okay. A Borel okay. chip, right? And it's, uh, these are, this is a young couple. Uh, the woman's Canadian and the, the husband is, uh, lived in the Netherlands for a while and they've, 
they've tried to recapitulate the the Dutch Brain Cafe, and it's on uh, Danforth Avenue near Greenwood, and it's really close to my house. And they have uh, bitterbone and croquettes that are just like just like you were in Amsterdam. Uh, matches hotting, good beer. They don't have they well, I think they do have Dutch beer, but uh, I'm not very partial to Dutch beer. Okay. So they have uh, local microbrews from uh, a, a micro pub in East York called the Mighty York, okay. which make excellent beer. That's one of the things that's really exploding on the east end of Toronto, actually, yeah. is uh, craft craft yeah. brewers. Yeah, okay. so so I'd have to go with Boral hands down. That's my go-to right now. Oh, that's awesome! Did you grow up with Dutch cuisine? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So this kind of also resonates with your childhood and yeah, and you know, Boral has nasi goreng with uh, chicken satay and stuff like that. You know, with sambal on the side and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Oh, so oh, that's great. <laughs> so I'm third, a first generation Canadian. First know? generation yeah, Canadian, so. Dutch Canadian, right? That's on right. Yeah. Both sides of your family. That's right. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So our third and last intro question is also the most controversial, and I know you don't want to answer this, but you're going to have to. So who do you think is the most overrated philosopher of our time, or if you like, of all time? Right. Well, the reason I don't want to answer this question is because I believe it's a rhetorical trap. Uh, <laughs> because Far be it from us to say well, rhetorical traps. Everyone reads. Everyone who studies philosophy reads someone who's famous or a key figure in the history of philosophy, and you kind of go, what? is the deal why is this important or you know and just kind of uh-huh. and you know i could say who that was for me but it would be an answer coming out of ignorance because then the more you study philosophy the more you realize if you know the historical context these people are responding to what their concerns are any kind of deeper drilling down you'll find out why people consider them important okay. and what you had missed and all yeah. that kind of thing so uh my, when i you know i was really struggling for an answer to this to this question when you told me it was going to be asked yeah and so i just thought of enlightenment figures uh i don't share the epistemological concerns with certainty uh that the enlightenment philosophers found so central and uh i think they're actually kind of um they're, they they uh, they take us down an inhumane path of questioning. So okay. I was going to say Descartes okay. for that reason, but uh, um, yeah. you know, but I have done a little bit of work in that you know in that era of philosophy and understand you know the political and religious turmoil of the time, and they were looking for a path to police people's beliefs and convictions right. and to sort of say you know maybe uh, heads shouldn't roll just because you think you're right and the other person is wrong. So if we can actually find a way of relativizing, you know, um, beliefs um, according to some sort of standard, mm-hmm. sort of rational standard, that might be a good thing for for a society that is very much on teetering on the edge of, uh, you know, violence and chaos. So, yeah. mm-hmm. um, you know, anyway, so it's, but I guess it's philosophers in the Enlightenment that I have the most kind of like uh, issues with. Yes. Yeah. Well, thank you for answering the question, <laughs> nonetheless. And then I'm sorry for not giving I, you a simple answer. No, no, this is great because <laughs> I mean, this is a school of philosophy, right? So this is exactly the kind of answer that I think really benefits. Well, the thing is that I, uh, I, I am really fascinated and and uh, inspired by philosophers like Ludwig Wittgenstein and Richard Rorty, and I've seen a lot of people kind of scratch their heads on both of those figures mm-hmm. and go, "Well, what's the deal here?" And I'm like, "What? How come you can't see what I can yeah. see?" And all that kind of thing. I'm sure there's people saying that about Descartes right now. So. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I I don't know if I'm right, but I faintly think that the, recently there was an article kind of in defense of Descartes by Marilyn Robinson. So, right. you know, we, we should track that down. And exactly. And if I read that, I would yeah. be like, oh, I'm regretting my answer now. <laughs> so to get to the topic of this segment of our show, tell us a bit about what you're working on, Ron. So right now I'm working on relocating the Institute for Christian Studies from 229 College <laughs> Street to 59 St. George Street. Very so. nice. That's just a, well, I mean, that has been, uh, that has kind of taken over my professional life for the last four, four or five months. But um, um, being the president of ICS for just a year now, um, and before that I was provost, so really kind of leading the institution for a little over a year, has uh, um, meant that I've had to turn my attention away from my own teaching and research. Mm-hmm. So we actually... Uh, suspended my teaching for a while yeah um but what i have been working on and off more off and on is uh the 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 idea uh in walter benjamin that he raises of the messianic and 
uh, the kind of thing that the kind of political possibility he spies in dark times um, for redemption and healing, transformation, and all sorts of things. Um, it's been something that I've been trying to develop intellectual antennae for, and mm-hmm. I've been hearing it in a wide array of philosophers, whether they're religious or not. So even a secular atheist like Rorty. Mm-hmm. So I had this idea of maybe putting together a few papers I'd written into a book that where it's the theme of the messianic, whether okay. whether the philosopher uses that theme or not, and qualified and def- well-defined um, how it would link thinkers like Hannah Arendt, Richard Rorty, uh, Giorgio Agamben, who I'll be teaching um, in my upcoming seminar in May with Jeff Dudiak. Uh, Tell us a bit more about that seminar. So... Um, one of the ways we thought of reintroducing my teaching into the ISS curriculum would be through an intensive format so that I can take two weeks out of my sort of more administrative duties and then just focus on teaching. So when we thought about that being maybe the way to introduce my teaching, then uh, one of the natural ideas was thinking about attaching uh, a course to our undergraduate workshop, which we've held for the last two years mm-hmm. and in, yeah. May, in May. And because we're also uh, embarking on an exploration of affiliation with the King's University, I thought, well, could we do an intensive seminar, link it to the undergraduate workshop, and have it be available for credit uh, both to undergraduate King's students in philosophy and ICS students. Mm-hmm. So, the, uh, so as the idea emerged, now it's going to be an intensive seminar that starts with the undergraduate workshop, and the theme will be political theology. And then people who are staying on to take the entire course will have another week mm-hmm. of intensive seminars, five hours a day, and uh, the, fo- the week uh, following the workshop. So this, the dates are May 23 to 31st, okay. 2019, and the course is called To an Unknown God, Paul and Some Philosophers, and we look at the uh, your most overrated philosopher, Slavoj Zizek, uh-huh. uh, uh, Alain Badieu, uh, Giorgio Agamben and uh, Jakob Taubes. Uh, Jakob Taubes' book on Paul, it's, I think it's called The Political Theology of Paul or something. Mm-hmm. I can't, oh man, I should have these details more at the front of my brain. Um, he kind of started off that whole discussion. Okay. Uh, um, so um, we're looking at the turn to Paul among these political philosophers, continental philosophers, um, and you know, trying to figure out what that's all about, and why that's they're interested awesome. in Paul. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that'll be the course. So and it's a course I've taught before. It's just getting a new format, and yeah. I'm co-teaching it with Jeff Dudiak of the King's University. Okay. He'll yes. be coming to Toronto for that, and so hopefully he'll bring a whole yeah. cohort of King students with him, and right. they'll participate in the undergraduate yeah. workshop, and they'll have a good kind of study in Toronto experience as part of their yeah. King's yeah. undergraduate program. So a, f- a follow-up question: We'll be talking about this undergraduate workshop as well as your course again and again and again over the the months ahead on this podcast. But um, uh, if I understand correctly, it's open to ICS students yep. uh, for graduate credit. It's open to students from the King's University for undergraduate credit. Would it also be open to students at the Toronto School of Theology or t- at other undergraduate institutions? Yeah, because I've taught it before in our regular. Th- 13-week seminar format. Mm-hmm. It's already been approved uh, by the Toronto School of Theology as a course that uh, TST students may take for credit. So the course is open to them. Um, of course, if they inquire and they want to take it, the, the undergraduate workshop is a requirement for the course. So anybody taking the course would have right. to also attend the undergraduate workshop. Right. That doesn't mean they have to present a paper there or yeah. respond to a paper, but they have to be part of the audience okay. and be part of the part because mm-hmm. the conversation starts yeah. Uh, yeah, in that workshop, and then carries on into the uh, more intensive seminar. Yeah, so, I really uh, like that. I, I think. That's and then there, I think there is also then a possibility because we've attracted other undergraduate students from other um, schools in the states and Canada to our undergraduate workshop. Um, that through um, King's approval of the course, they may be able to get a transcript from King's that may transfer into their institution right. for undergraduate right. credit too. So I, that may be a possibility. I think that all that, that's a registrarial decision at their home universities, but at least yeah. the fact that a, you know, a, an accredited undergraduate institution has approved the course for credit usually means you can you know, take it yeah. for credit in your own institution. Before we move on to our third segment, uh, something just actually came to mind for me, and that is that there's a connection. Uh, as you're talking about what you're writing and what you're working on in terms of writing, I realized that there's a connection between this podcast and your writing. 
because we're calling this podcast Critical Faith, and I think that's also the title of one of your books. So do you want to just tell us about that book a little bit briefly? Sure. Yeah, no problem. Um, I first want to make completely clear that I did not pick the title for this podcast. <laughs> that's a great it title. Was one of the, it was one of the titles. Of course, I like the title. Yeah. <laughs> but... Um, uh, it was the students, you know, uh, ICS is a really kind of special community in terms of yeah. the fact that uh, students and professors get together and talk about how are we going to do these things. Uh, this whole podcast is really started with student initiative. Yeah. And basically the job of my job was to buy the equipment and get out of the way. Yeah. Um, but then when a bunch of names were being floated around, that was one of the ones that the students pick. And it was the ones it was the one that kind of won the day. So yeah. anyway. Yeah. The book, my book, Critical Faith, is actually my PhD dissertation. Okay. So, um, and it was published by, uh, in a series called Currents of Encounter, which was uh, co-edited by my uh, uh, co-promoter at the Free University, Hendrik Vrome, who passed away uh, a few years ago from cancer. Um, but, uh, yeah, basically it's it's my PhD dissertation. And, and uh, one of the things I always want to emphasize about the title is it's not... It's not meant to be. Um, it's meant to be a, have a double uh, a, a play on the word critical. Um, mm. So it's not just about having a faith that is also critical and rational and you know and uh-huh. prophetic and all those kinds. Of, it's that too, right? But it's also about the the idea that it's critical to have faith. It's crucial. It's. Mm. I was yeah. trying to you know yeah. most people hear the the critical in terms of you know have a faith that's kind of tempered by you know criticism and self criticism, okay. but I actually think. One of the points I was trying to make is that, normatively speaking, someone you should carry your faith in a way that isn't just that opens you to hearing criticism of your own worldview from outside of itself. Mm-hmm. That I think part of what it means to be a Christian is to be open to mm-hmm. receiving that. So that was one of the things I tried to argue for in that book. But it was also the other side was that, and it's the reformational kind of tenant or saw that everybody comes from a position of faith right yeah, so yeah. um whether you call it faith or not there's going to be some kind of fundamental orientation that you are operating from that isn't itself rationally grounded mm-hmm. um dickenstein famously said if the ground is if uh what was it again i gotta get this right um if if truth is what is grounded then the ground is not true nor mm-hmm. is it false Mm-hmm. The ground is the ground, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it's the idea that you that we stand on something that is um, that orients us in the world, and um, so yeah, so it's uh, it's an interesting book. It kind of starts with John Locke and okay. sort of the the Enlightenment concerns with policing religion in the public sphere, and then it really embarks on an apologetic kind of philosophy of religion tour of defending what it means to live. A religious life have a faith orientation uh-huh. from various intellectualistic misconstruals in the history of philosophy right that faith is a form of intellectual assent to propositional doctrine or those kinds of things it's sort of trying to have a more phenomenologically rich understanding of what it means to have faith mm-hmm. how we can understand faith as a kind of knowledge uh so it has a bunch of those chapters and then the last chapter returns to jürgen habermas who puts mounts a pretty at least in his earlier work in the theory of communicative action puts kind of a serious challenge to people of faith to sort of make their, um, especially if they want to have a voice in the public sphere, mm-hmm. um, that they should only, um, that they should be communicative and that anything they say should be, um, you know, uh, up for debate and all, uh, potentially refutable or, mm-hmm. you know, um, or that, you know, um, that they should be able to, you know, cash it in rationally or something like that. Uh-huh. And of course, uh-huh. um, the enlightenment kind of commitment to reason itself is never subjected to that standard, right? It's, it's never um, seen as itself extra or meta rational. Um, so it always gets a pass when it comes to that. And then, and, but your, your, your faith commitments that can't be sort of expressed in universally acceptable terms or secular terms, you have to check those at the door. So it's kind of, um, kind of starts to take his challenge very seriously, but then tries to say, well, can we, he learn something from Habermas, but also move beyond him in terms of, uh, speaking uh from a position of faith in public mm-hmm. and making having faith influence culture and society and politics and all that kind of oh, that's great thank you so in the third of our new regular segments we want to talk directly to the professors of the future and their professors today 
Moving on from what you've been working on, we will talk about what it's like to be a scholar and how we made our way to academic lives. We hope over time to map the journey from being an undergraduate student to being a professor of philosophy or theology with an emphasis on teaching philosophy in undergraduate programs. This week, we will each talk a little about something that happened in our own undergraduate years that moved us in the direction of where we are now as graduate students or faculty of the ICS. So, Ron, what has your journey been like? Well, really, in uh, I went to uh, I went to Edmonton Christian High School. I went to you know West Edmonton Christian School. So I went to the school in the Christian Day School movement, heavily influenced by that kind of Kuyperian vision of the integration of faith and learning and having the uh, Christian faith um, matter throughout the curriculum and be a, be present throughout the curriculum, not just a separate Bible class or things of that nature. But I went to, so after I graduated from Edmonton Christian High School, I went to the King's College at the time, now the King's University, uh, in 1987, and I was as an English major. So English was my favorite subject in high school, and uh, philosophy wasn't taught in high school, so we did a section on philosophy in our social studies class, and we did some political philosophy in uh, in a social studies class too, so was exposed a little bit to uh, Plato and um, Marx, I guess. <laughs> in high school, but uh, really it was all about English literature. And, um, but I did sort of, toward the end of high school, get turned on to philosophy by my brother-in-law, who's uh, seven years older than me, who um, was a philosophy minor, English major, so I thought a philosophy would be a good minor to have. And, um, you know, um, so so I did that. Uh, and then just uh, when I went to King's, I just did really well in my philosophy classes. And there was a philosoph- there was two professors there at the time, philosophy professors uh, Henry Skirman and Vadenhaus. And Vaden was an ICS uh, alum. He did his PhD with Hendrik Hart, and uh, so he could tell me about ICS and whether or not it would be a good place for me to go. And he encouraged me to go. Um, I took uh, two years at the University of Alberta and then um, went back to Kings to get a to finish my bachelor's degree at Kings. And it was in that last year at Kings that I decided to major in philosophy to like switch the minor to a major and pick up just more philosophy classes and kind of had the bug and uh, uh, I yeah I basically took a year off to go backpacking through Europe and then I applied to ICS and came to ICS in the fall of 1992 to study with Hank Hart so Vaden would, would would be quite was quite an influential there's always that prof in your undergrad who kind of, there was a few people, Douglas Herrick in theology was also one who was very important to me when I was at my time at King's, Henry Sherman for, as well. Um, but those three, yeah. Yeah, because you and I had very, you and I had strangely similar, come from very strangely similar circumstances in terms of like religious upbringing and kind of that manner of finding your way to this weird thing was philosophy. Did you go to Christian day schools as well? I was homeschooled. Ooh. <laughs> so that was even well, And more. you were a farm girl. I was a city boy. Well, so there's, there's some deeper, deeper similarities oh, okay. here. <laughs> Optimist versus pessimist. I don't know. Um, but so I guess one difference would be like in my, when I was growing up, uh, going on to more school was kind of a running joke. In my family, like lifelong learners, ha ha ha, like that person's right. in college forever. Um, well, which my is parents funny weren't now. like they. I don't know. They were like, well, we've paid the Christian school tuition now for twelve years. So if you want to go to college, you're on your own, kind of thing. <laughs> so there was no more, no like no real. They helped out a little bit, but really, I had to, you know. So yeah. they they didn't they didn't prevent it, but they also didn't necessarily see yeah. the value in it and. Um, yeah. But maybe that's a good thing in the sense of like you had to find it for yourself. And even that, you know, finding a way in through like a love of literature. Mine was like history in in high school. Yeah. History was what got me. But it was for like the narrative aspect of history. Like that it told a story that we, you know, we forget aspects of from time to time of like who we are and like that was kind of what got me ended up pushing me toward philosophy in right. a weird way. And you grew up Christian Reformed as well, right? Yeah. In Idaho? Yeah. So um, that, that What was the community like? Because in Edmonton was a real hotbed. Yeah. You know, um, even before King's College started, there was this group of people who wanted a Christian, you know, Reformed college in 
in the Western Canada. So there was there was a real, you know, it's it's a it's a big area for the CLAC for all these sort of. So I really, when I look back, I feel like even if my parents didn't really cherish higher education, I was being raised in a village that did. Mm-hmm. So the teachers I had mm-hmm. in school and in high school were would encourage that in you, yeah. even if your parents didn't necessarily get it. Yeah. Um, and so I, so I never looked back like that. I was uh, discouraged from doing it. Rather, I was feel more like I was encouraged, even if it wasn't from necessarily from my parents. That's they didn't ask, also stand in the way. So they or they didn't. Yeah, I don't know. It's um, well, that is a is a product of that environment too. In my mind, it's the same same kind of thing where I felt very encouraged to take like a word that I want. Like to engage life fully, to engage things thoroughly, and to like look at them closely because of kind of that reformed air that I grew up in, like mm-hmm. that particular one anyway. And it was a matter of having specific people who, yeah, pushed me in that direction. Yeah. The school that I went to undergrad for is, it's funny, again, that you say talk about Kings that way because the way that the school that I went to, um, which is called Providence, um, mm-hmm. was always talking about itself as filling that need that the Christian formed community had to have a school like that on the West Coast. Right. And so they thought they, you know, saw themselves as filling that very specific need and of having a kind of enterprising spirit about it. And that was also kind of what drew me in. And you know what? We we can't actually neglect the fact that uh, your parents and my parents notwithstanding there are a lot of non-academic blue-collar people who saw the value in this, right? Uh, you know, so I go around the country talking to people who give to ICS, and there's some people I'm going, "Wow, why do you people give to ICS?" And they're just like, "Well, you know, we have we put out the cans, and every month a certain amount of money goes in each can, kind of thing. Like it's it's a metaphor, but that's kind of how like the Dutch tithe or whatever. And you know, they basically said, "Well, you know, we've just always told out the sermon that uh, we 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 march to the beat of a different drummer." And, uh, you know, and I was kind of moved by that in the sense that, you know, there's still uh, intellectual nourishment that our community provides for people of faith uh, in the church and uh, through the other organizations, and uh, they seem to value higher education and still support it. So, uh, you know, so it's an interesting, it's an interesting community. (laughs) And of course, it's aging and things are changing and all that, and we don't have to go down that road. But, um, you know, when I... They they did build something. I mean, yesterday I was at the uh, a day for uh, ministry partners of the Christian Reformed Church in Canada. Um, they they have a newly renovated office in Burlington, and so they want to show their ministry partners the new space and also talk about how we're partnering together and how we can continue to partner together and enhance our partnerships. And I you know it's in a room with twenty or twenty one organizations that were all started in the 50s and 60s and 70s by really, you know, where the Christian Reformed Church and the, and the Dutch immigration wave after World War II had a lot to do with that. And these people can really say they've accomplished something even when these organizations are moving beyond them now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it was really interesting to be in a room with, you know, representatives from CARDIS and CLAC and Christian Schools Foundation and Shalane Mental Health and Beginnings adoption agency and uh yeah just just a uh, cpj um it was it's really um interesting yeah. so how do you how do you see that kind of awareness of where you came from feeling that through like your own undergraduate and then moving into graduate school like how do you feel that it's alive for you now or do you well it's interesting because one of I've always been part of a community with, that just took quite naturally the idea that your faith isn't a private thing. It isn't a Sunday thing. It's something you carry with you through your entire life. And when you talk about politics or you're involved politically, it's because of the way your faith motivates you to desire a certain vision of social justice. Uh, and, you know, and these institutions were started from out of that sense of conviction. So, and then all of a sudden you slam into a kind of a liberal nation state that, uh, uh, where secularism is ascendant, and uh, there's various strong voices that think that religion is a private affair and doesn't belong in the public sphere. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you have all these great organizations uh, representing a ton of social capital, doing a ton of good work. 
welcoming refugees, helping them settle and integrate into Canada, um, uh, all kinds of stuff. And you, you, you sort of, so then you, yeah, you kind of get into that point of view where you want to join forces with these groups to sort of say, uh, tell a different narrative about faith in the public sphere um, and the kind of social capital that represents and the, uh, and the, uh, the way it strengthens our uh, national fabric and not rather than weakens it. A lot of people are afraid of the divisiveness that faith brings to the public sphere. And that's true, and that's there, and that's why we need to be critical of that. But it's also um, the story that doesn't get told is how people of faith will often join forces with people of uh, different faiths or no faith to uh, work toward um, increasing the common good. Um, you know, that doesn't mean religion has a spotless public record, far from it. I mean, we're dealing with the aftermath of the res- residential schools and, uh, you know, the forced assimilation and, uh, you know, really cultural attempt at cultural annihilation of the indigenous peoples. So, you know, there's a lot to answer for. And there's a lot of, you know, and that also, that history is humbling and it makes you understand why people would rather see uh, religious voices kept out of the public sphere. But, um, when you come from the kind of village and traditions that I come from, it just, you can't be Christian any other way. Do you think there's a different, like, have you seen a difference in how you kind of live out those things at, like, from, from a personal perspective as someone who lives in those communities versus finding yourself in a position of, like, teaching? And if you, do you relate to those things in a different way on those levels? Or do you find those are... So you're talking about, do I carry my faith differently uh, when I'm teaching in a Christian institution and then when I'm out in the more public, pluralistic world? Or I'm not sure I understand the question. I'm not sure I understand the question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just wondering if if you find that there's a difference in kind of coming to see these things as a learner. Versus then also finding yourself in a position of trying to help others oh, right, recognize okay. these things. Um, Maybe that's a better way of putting it. Yeah. I'm kind of naive and non-self-reflective about myself as a teacher. So <laughs> that might be give me a problem in answering your question because um, I think it also makes me a good teacher because I'm sort of open to learning from my students or if they step into a knowledge gap that I have and they have something that I don't have, I'm not threatened by that or mm-hmm. anything like that. So... Um, I think I just sort of try to carry myself with authenticity. So this is my background. These are my convictions. Uh, I'll stick up for them, but I'll also hear, um, criticism of them. So, you know, in the classroom, I think it's a safer space to kind of drill deeper and even be vulnerable about these kinds of things. Um, so out in the more sort of public pluralistic world, I mean, I do most of my social circle actually, interestingly enough, are sort of non-christian secularistic you know lovely good people but you know some of them are public school teachers and they do not want any funding for religious public schools so you get into that every once in a Mm -hmm. while and you try to make your case i even had one of my friends say well you know i know you're wrong you won the argument but i know you're still wrong because they just you know (laughs) (laughs) my basic argument was that the uh the worldview uh the secularistic liberal sort of political worldview that was um in charge of the public school system was not itself a religiously neutral worldview, right? And, uh, you know, and, and so it's, uh, you know, it got to ins- enforce a certain particularistic set of values and, uh, and parents who didn't share those values couldn't, um, you know, um, have any influence on the way their kids were schooled. And that was a power play and all that kind of thing. And he kind of looked at me, well, I think you won this argument, but you're still wrong for some reason. So I'm going to go home and figure out, you know, <laughs> but anyway, I, I, I don't know if that's to answer your question, but, uh, so I'll get a little more, um, yeah, they don't quite know what to do with me. The guys on my hockey team, too. They're just, uh, <laughs> I mean, all these weird contexts where to be religious is a very strange vestigial thing from the past that they're like, oh, you're still, a, call yourself that? You know, we got over that when we were teenagers kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I just, yeah, I am what I am, like Popeye, right? <laughs> <laughs>
And that brings us to the fourth and last of our new regular segments. And to copy the example of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, our favorite segment every week, What is Your Pleasure? In this segment, we get to kick off our shoes and talk about the other things we do for fun beyond philosophy, which we do for fun. Yes. <laughs> uh, the movies and the television shows we are watching, the sports and games we play, the food and drink we make and enjoy, the music we listen to, and so on. And so we will just start with an easy question. And over the next few weeks, we will be talking about what music we listen to at the moment. So, Danielle, what are you listening to? Well, I have gotten back into writing again recently, which is a great thing for a graduate student to be able to say. Um, and when I do, I tend to get into this mode where I just listen to a number of things and then I listen to one song or one album and then I like hit repeat and then it's just repeat for until I get the project done, whatever it is. So that could be a week, could be a month of just repeat. That's great. Um, so there's one <laughs> that's doing that, which has been, it's not really a full album. It's an EP by, I don't, I don't know whether you say his name, Hosier or Hosier. It depends okay. on who okay. you ask, I think. And um, where you come from, I suppose. Probably. Yeah. If you want to sound pretentious, which I'm going to want to sound pretentious, yeah. I guess, I'm going to go with Hosier. Um, yeah. He put out an EP called uh, Nina Cries Power uh, earlier this year. Okay. And it's four songs and... Like he's known for that "Take Me to Church" song from a few years oh, ago, and he hadn't put anything out for a while. Okay. And I just I remember right before this album or this EP came out, thinking, "Oh, I haven't heard anything from new from Hosier for a while. I really wish he would put out some new music." And then the next day, this EP happened. I was like, "The gods have listened." <laughs> um, and it's it sounds very similar to. The style of his first album, he has a very yeah. distinctive kind of voice. Yeah. It's very bluesy and kind of oh, gothic rock kind of sound. Um, but this EP is kind of a much cleaner version of that. Like it's very pristine. It's well done. And it also features uh, a song with Mavis Staples on it, oh, wow. which is really lovely. And... The whole oh, thing that'll is be taking me to church. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. And the whole thing is kind of an homage to, um, well, especially the song with Mavis Staples, which I can't remember the title of it now. Right. Um, yeah. The whole thing is kind of an homage to kind of the Black Lives Matter movement and kind of listening yeah. to those, like him listening yeah. to those voices yeah. quite literally on this album. And yeah. it's really good. Yeah. Oh, so uh, who's here, who's here? <laughs> who's here, who's here, who's here, who's here? H-O-Z or Z-I-E-R. There's no oh, clear okay. way of communicating okay. this name yeah. because everyone's Well, oh, I just want a whole bunch of musicians to put out different songs with the title Take Me to Church because then I could have this one along with the Shenandoah Conner one and mm. then, you know, a number of others and be awesome and, uh, you know, moving. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so um, I have a little list. Oh, um, tell so, me. Um, uh, a friend of mine, Jake Balder, is a priest in the Anglican Church in England, a uh, former student of mine from forever ago at Virginia University College, actually, here in Ontario. And uh, Jake recently mentioned on Twitter that uh, when he needs to write, he listens to Baroque music or to trance music, which is an electronic dance uh, genre. Basically two versions of the same thing. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, I don't know if I would say that, but uh, he then introduced me to a Finnish DJ uh, called uh, Orkidia, O-R-K-I-D-E-A, and um, I've been listening to that and to other trance music from, from Jake, my priest friend. Um, I also, though, follow... Uh, um, the suggestion that once you listen to Baroque music when you write. And so I've been listening to actually a single piece of music on repeat over and over again ah. quite a bit. Uh, bass clarinet version of Gaius Bach's um, uh, Suite Number One for Clarinet. Oh. Um, and it's recorded by Tony Park, uh, and I just love it. I, I, I love the bass clarinet. It's just a beautiful instrument. So. Very soulful. 
Yeah, and then brand new, as of today, um, in this past week, a whole new album dropped from Very Unfaithful. Um, and uh, the album is called Negative uh, Capability. It was released on November 2. I listened to it on Spotify. And my favorite song on it so far is called The Gypsy Fairy Queen. And it's a song that she does with me. Oh, that sounds fantastic. I've never heard of Marianne Faithful. You are so young. <laughs> you are so young. Marianne Faithful is of the generation of Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones. Ah, okay. British singer. Um, yeah, and, uh, you know, just like that whole generation, not a youngster, and this is just the most beautiful album. It sort of harkens back to British folk music. And so this particular song, The Gypsy Fairy Queen, uh, is sung in the voice of Puck. Oh. Uh, so the, the character in meaning, uh, uh, or at least in, at least in one William Shakespeare play. Yeah. And, uh, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just a beautiful song. Well, you know what? I'm going to have to go have a listen to. So that brings us to the end of our show this week. If you would like to know more about the Center for Philosophy, Religion, and Social Ethics and the Institute for Christian Studies, you can visit us at icscanada.edu. If anything from this week's segment piques your interest, you can also email us at criticalfaith at icscanada.edu. You can also find us all on Twitter. You can find Ron at Kuypers Ronald. You can find my co-host at at Gideon Strauss. And you can find me at at... B-E-W-A-R-E-T-H-E-Y-E-T-T-I. And you can follow the Institute for Christian Studies on Twitter at I-N-S-C-H-R. Yes. And from the heart of ICS, thank you all for listening. This has been Critical Faith. If you like what you heard, subscribe to us on iTunes and consider giving us a review. It helps people find us and keeps us on their radar. Most importantly, tell your friends. See you next time. (laughs) 